Well, it's been so good to be with you today and have the privilege of worshipping together and sharing uh, God's Word together. Um, it's quite a warm evening, isn't it? And uh, it, it reminds me of a number of years ago I was preaching in Willenhall, and for their sins they asked me to preach three times in one day. So that was morning, afternoon, at night, and it was a day just as warm as this, so at the end of the service I was speaking to a lady, I was a little bit weary, so I yawned. And then I quickly apologized. It says, oh, don't apologize. I've been yawning all day. <laughs> Nothing to do with the preaching, in case that entered your head. It was, more, it was the weather, wasn't it? So have a little yawn if needs be. I know it's the weather. But I'll ask you to turn with me to Psalm number 17, the 17th Psalm. That's page 550 for those who are using uh, the church Bibles and 851 for the large print Now, I'm sure that most of us here, if not all of us, have seen one of those programs on television, these antique programs which are on virtually every day, Bargain Hunt and all, all the rest of it. And if you've seen those programs, at some time or other, you'd see some innocuous, seemingly insignificant little object produced, which has been kept in a garden shed or in some cardboard box in a drawer for uh, perhaps tens of years. Uh, and it's been brought for an evaluation. And suddenly when it's put into the hands of the expert, you can see a glint in the eye and a broad smile right across the expert's face. And he suddenly says, it's a gem. It's rare. It's precious. And says, this is valuable. And you kept it in a drawer all these years. You can just sense the expression of the person. And in many ways, I believe this Psalm 17 falls into that particular category. If I were to ask you this evening, uh, before that psalm was read, if someone had said Psalm 17, could you have told the contents? Or, or even, could you quote a verse from that? Or, or possibly, uh, when was the last time you heard a sermon preached on that particular psalm? Well, if you were being honest, I think most of you would say no, no, and no to it. And yet it is this real gem of a psalm. The other psalms nearby, which are known much better, Psalm 19, heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth His handiwork. Every day it speaks 24-7. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Who doesn't know that? Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 46, our God is a pre very present help in time of trouble. But Psalm 17, what's in Psalm 17? And yet it is this precious psalm. And I want to give you three reasons to start with why this psalm demands and requires our attention. And the first thing is its title. It is called A Prayer of David. Now, there are 150 psalms, as you probably know, and there are only five of the 150 which are titled or entitled a psalm, which are designated a psalm of prayer. Only five of that. And of the five, three of these are uh, attributed to David. Three out of 150. But you might well be asking, why should these psalms receive this designation? Surely many of the psalms have prayers in them or are prayers. Well, many psalms do have prayers in them, but the prayers are just part of the psalm. But when you come to this particular psalm, the whole psalm is concerned with prayer. Uh, and the, the psalmist uses four different Hebrew words in order to express prayer. Listen to him. 
Hear me, Lord. My plea is just listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. Do not raise, uh, do not rise from, do not rise from deceitful lips. And then down on verse six, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Now you can't fail but to sense the intensity and the urgency with which this man prays. You can't fail to notice that. Can you imagine in prayer meetings of churches, if one after another stood up and prayed like that, what a prayer meeting. Perhaps what a difference to the prayer meeting. And so this is why it's called a psalm of David. And then the second reason is, is the particular word which is used in the title. It is a prayer of David's. Now, there are at least 12 words or Hebrew words which are used in connection with prayer to define it and describe it. But the particular word which we have here, it means to intervene. It means to intervene. Uh, and this fits very well in with the context. Here's a man who's in a dire situation. He's facing difficulties. He's up against it. He, he doesn't know how, in a sense, he can cope with it. And the only answer is that God should intervene. The only remedy is that God should intervene. And so he makes that request, oh Lord, intervene. Now why does the psalmist pray like that? Is he just whistling in the dark, hoping to keep his courage up? Is he, in a sense, just trying to somehow or other make himself feel better, saying, Lord, intervene? No, this represents his theology. It represents what he knows God is able to do, God's ability. He's able to intervene. Now, where did he get that knowledge? How did he come to this conviction? How did he arrive at this particular conclusion? Well, clearly from the Scriptures, the God who made heaven and earth is a God who intervenes. When Adam and Eve sinned, God legitimately could have left them to their own devices and the consequences of their sin and their lostness. But God comes in the cool of the day and seeks them out and speaks to them. He intervenes. In, in the third, uh, we go on down in the chapters of Genesis, and you find in the 11th chapter uh, these words. And these when uh, people, it's wickedness, or, and the, their rebellion against God is reaching the pinnacle. And this is what is said, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building, the Tower of Babel. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. It's God's intervening. He's coming down. And likewise, in Exodus, and much of the language of this psalm is Exodus language. And here, God is speaking to Moses. And Exodus chapter 3, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. He's a God who intervenes. And the psalmist knew that. And this is the, the basis, this is the foundation for this prayer, this cry for an intervention of God. That, that's the kind of God you are. That's what he's saying. Now, this is a thousand years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how much more should we be convinced of a God who inter, inter, intervenes? 
The Apostle Paul sums it up this way. He said, in the fullness of time, or just at the right time, God sent forth his own son. He intervenes. And John, when he's writing in the uh, first epistle in the fourth chapter, he says, we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son. And we have to get hold of that. It's the nature of our God. We're not whistling in the dark. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a pious hope. It's the very nature of the God upon whom we call. But you know, it's so easy to lose that. And sometimes there's an American theologian called Paul Tillage. And this is what he said. I don't ask God for anything. I just meditate in his presence. It sounds so spiritual. Doesn't it? I just meditate in God. But really, it's betraying. It's revealing his unbelief. It's showing his denial that he believes in a God who intervenes. He's frightened to ask, or he hasn't the courage to ask, or he doesn't believe if he does ask, anything will happen. But we're in a different kettle of fish than that. A.W. Tozer said, faith without expectation is dead. And here's the psalmist belief. He believed in a God who would intervene. And this was his sense of anticipation. This is what he especially wanted to convey. I will call on you, my God, for you will answer me. You will answer me. Because he believed that is in the nature of God. See, it's Spurgeon put it this way. Because God is the living God, he can answer us. He's a living God. Because he's a loving God, he will answer us. And because he's a faithful God, he must answer us because he promised to answer us. And he's shown himself to be a God who intervenes. And this is what the psalmist is doing. Lord, intervene. Intervene. I wonder when we come to prayer, is this in the back of our mind? Martin Luther, when it came to the doctrine of justification, he said to the people, write it on your eyeballs. So as soon as you open your eyes, you see justification. I would say we should write it on our eyeballs, in the forefront of our mind. The God to whom we pray is an intervening God. No matter how dire, no matter how difficult, no matter how trying the situation is, the psalmist believes that. That's the second reason why I believe this is such a gem. And then the third reason is this, is the particular problem which David finds himself in. And it's pictured in this psalm. See, it's Spurgeon says that the smell of the furnace is everywhere in this psalm. You know, notice it's burning. And here's a man who's in the fire. He's in the fire and there's that smell everywhere. Here is a person under pressure. And truly in these days, we just sense so many people are under pressure. They feel it. And there might be a whole lot of reasons, but there it is, just this pressure. And at times to be almost overwhelming. It seems to be incremental as time goes on. And at times the burden seems so great, you wonder how you can cope or you wonder how you can continue. Now, we can't be quite definite as to what David is referring to in this psalm because it doesn't say so. But it seems reasonably clear this was a period which was recorded in 1 Samuel from 20 to 26. And during that time, David was being hunted and hounded by King Saul. And Saul would leave no turn, no stone unturned. 
He would do anything and everything in order to apprehend David. He was hounding him relentlessly day after day. Can you feel it? Every day. Can you imagine getting up and you're on the run? And it goes on day after day after day. It's relentless. It's unremitting. Can you sense why David felt under pressure? Well, this is the way what the, the apostle, what the, the, uh, David speaks of. Look at verse 9. From the wicked who are out to destroy me, whom my mortal enemies who surround me, they close up their callous hearts with their mouths, speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down, they now surround me, my eyes alert, with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. And then he uses this illustration in verse 12. They're like a hungry lion or a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in the cover. Have you ever seen those programs? And there's the lion. It's just fixated with that prey. It won't take its eyes off it. And there it is pursuing it. And anyway, the prey turns, the lion turns. And it's just longing to pounce. And, and the poor creature senses it and senses it and senses it. And David felt like that, that he was under a, a such pressure, intense pressure. He seemed to be stalked in, in every sense. Now the question is, when we feel intense pressure, how do we speak to ourselves? What do we say to ourselves in those situations? Or do we just go on feeling and hope that it will pass? Is that what we do? That's always a possibility. Or, or even when we see other people under pressure, what do we say to them? Well, what can we tell them that will be a help and a blessing, a source of encouragement in that situation? Or when we're under pressure, how do we pray? And what do we pray for? How would you instruct someone if you saw them just bowed over by many-sided problems? How would you inf inform them to pray or instruct them to pray? That's the question. Well, David answers that in this particular psalm. Isn't that a wonderful thing? For ourselves and for other people. And this is what he does in Psalms 17. And here is the antidote to these assaults and to these uh, attacks. Now, this psalm is divided into three sections. Quite easy sections in terms of, you can see how it changes in mood. And we have verses one to six. And here the psalmist is praying for God's gracious vindication. You notice what he says here, verse two, let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. You know what David feels like? They close their callous hearts. Their mouths speak with arrogance regarding David. They were saying things about David. They were saying things ab about David to Saul. They were poisoning the mind of Saul towards David, or at least intensifying that, that poison. And then on down we find in verse 15, As for me, for me I will be vindicated and will see your face. This is a situation. And David feels that. You know, when people do sing things, say things about us, or people do things with regards to us, and sometimes it doesn't matter what we do, or what we attempt to do, or even what we say, we can't seem to somehow placate them, or to convince them otherwise of our innocence in that particular situation. Remember with David and Saul, and David had two separate occasions when he could have killed Saul. And he shows that Saul is sleeping and David comes down. On one occasion, he even cuts 
off a part of his cloak to show Saul how close I was to you. And another occasion, he takes Saul's spear and his jug. And the friends of David saying, this is your opportunity. The Lord's delivered him into your hand. Now, now you can get rid of Saul once and for all. And David doesn't. And you would think in the light of that, Saul would have said, imagine the thoughts I've had towards David. I have hounded David. I have hunted David. You'd feel that he would be filled with utter remorse. But it wasn't. He still went on and on and on. You see, there are some occasions, no matter what we say, and no matter what we do, we can't seem to persuade other people otherwise than what they're thinking. We can't somehow or other transform the evil thoughts they have with regard to us. What do you do? Well, David shows us here. He, he, he's a realist. So he turns to God and he says, may your, my vindication come from you. May the sentence come from heaven. May you show what is right in this situation. Because David is realistic. He knows at times we cannot vindicate ourselves. And unless we turn that into prayer as David did, that will eat away at us. Why are they saying that to me? We'll be filled with self-pity. Why are they doing that to me? We'll be filled with all sorts of thoughts. And David knows that you can't handle that. He's worried about that. And so what he does, he immediately brings this to the Lord. You vindicate And that's what he's doing. And then he recognizes in that situation how easy it is. Rather than resolving the issue, we become part of the problem. Look what what he he said. Though people tried to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. What's he saying there? David knew that in that situation, he could stumble. He could start to react. He could start to respond to these situations as others were doing to him. And he suddenly realizes, well, I could become like that. I have a feeling it almost wants me to react like that, to just get him, to say things back about him, to do all sorts of things to get even. And he realizes that what a stumbling block that would be. And he's aware of that. And so consequently, what he does, he said, Lord, Let my vindication come from you. And then the third thing is David's reliance. He believed God will vindicate. He does believe it. He's convinced that God will vindicate. Sooner or later, then or in the future, sometime or other, it's going to be vindicated. He's going to be vindicated. And with that knowledge that sooner or later it's going to be done, he can now and a measure rest. Don't we see that in the Old Testament? You remember Enoch? He walked with God. And there weren't many walking with God. And oftentimes he's walking alone. Can you imagine the people, look at this silly man. Who who does he think he is? He's got pipe dreams. He's got fanciful thoughts. He's delusionary. There he is. Can you imagine the, the, the comments that we made as it often is with true Christians today and the Christian attitudes and so forth? All of these things. But you know what happened? The Bible tells us Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Oh, they wondered then. That silenced him. There was no more snipe comments there. 
There was, there was none of this, uh, these terrible uh, remarks about Enoch. Do you remember Noah? And can you see him building that ark week in, week out, year in, year out? <laughs> can you just imagine the people walking past and smiling? <laughs> Look at this. Look, what's he doing? <laughs> He's wasting his time. He, he must be mad. He must be. But I'll tell you, one day, the clouds broke and the rains came and the floods came up and they weren't laughing then. God vindicated our Savior on the cross. Can you imagine the vile things they said about him? Scripture puts it, when he was reviled, he reviled not in return. He didn't respond. But it tells us what he did. He committed himself to a faithful creator. And the creator vindicated, didn't he? Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And you see, David had that sense of reliance. I don't have to act like them. I don't have to respond in kind. I don't have to be filled with self-pity. God will vindicate. He will vindicate. And that's the attitude that we should have. The danger is that we try to fight fire with a flamethrower. It doesn't work. <laughs> we need, as it were, to have that blessing of God. And then the next thing section is, is from verses 6 to 9. And uh, this brings out, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. And then he, he then sets out the prayer in the next few verses. And he uses three verbs during the course of it. The first one is, show me. The second verb is, uh, keep me. And then the third verse is, hide me in the shadow of your wings. And what a comprehensive prayer that is in circumstances such as those in which David is placed. When you feel the pressures, and very often you feel the pressures, you feel isolated. You can feel alone. You can feel unloved. All, all of these things. You can even start to question your faith. Because remember, David had been uh, anointed. David had been anointed by this time to be a king, to be a monarch. And instead, he's on the run. And he's been hounded. And he's been sought to be destroyed. How does that work out? God had given him the, this wonderful blessing that he was going to rule the country. And now he's just a man on the run. And in, in, life, in life, it happens like that. There will be experiences that seem somehow to be seemingly to contradict the promises of God. Often like that. Where our, the providences of God seem to contradict the promises of God to us. And that, and that perplexes us for ourselves and for other people at times. That's the reality. And we're trying to deal with that in our mind. Well, how, how do you pray? when you're in that state of perplexity? How do you pray when you're in a state of insecurity and uncertainty? Well, David tells us here, show me the wonders of your great love. You who have saved by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from the foes, keep me as the apple of their eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Because oftentimes there we, we're told to pray, God says, call upon me and I will answer you. And some of us have been praying for people for years. The same people. There's the promise, but it hasn't happened. 
Is there something wrong? Is there something wrong with me? And so forth. Don't we believe the gospel is the power of God under salvation to everyone who believes, believes it? Don't we believe that? But why is it if it's the power of God so few, so few people are being saved at times? How's that? There are these perplexing things, and we mustn't run away from them. We're realists. We face up to them. But the thing is, what do we do in all these circumstances where there seems to be things out of kilter in terms of God's Word? We pray, show me the wonders of your great love. Now, just look at these words. Say in a prayer meeting, someone stood up and said, Lord, show me your love. That'd be good, wouldn't it? You don't hear prayers like that very often. That'd be good. But Dave didn't pray that. He didn't even pray, Lord, show me your great love. Can you imagine if someone stood up and said, Lord, show me your great love. Everybody said, what amazing prayer. And it is amazing. But he didn't pray that. What he prayed was, show me the wonders of your great love. There's a big difference between seeing a reality and seeing the wonder of a reality. A vast difference. A lovely starlit night. And you go out and you look up at the sky. Two people, a friend. And one friend looks up and says, that's a nice night tonight. The other person looks up and says, isn't that astonishing? Isn't that awesome? They both had seen the same thing. They were both looking at the same realities. But it wasn't the same response. One saw the wonder. And that's what we need to see. The wonders of great love. Show me the wonder of your great love. There's a song used to be sung in, in churches. I don't know why it's sung so much today. It's the wonder of springtime and harvest. It's the wonder of star and space. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul just to know that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to know that God loves me. What a thing to sense the wonder of God's love. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own Son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. Isn't that wonderful, isn't it? And think, David is writing a thousand years before the supreme and the greatest and the ultimate revelation of God's love. And he can pray, Lord, show me the wonders of your great love. How much more should we be able to pray that prayer? How much more that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much we're loved. That's how much we loved. And, and, and he's, he's praying for that. And you know, it doesn't matter who we are. If somebody loves us, we can say we're very important to someone. Isn't that right? Can you imagine if God loves us? 
how important we are. What a thing it is uh, to know uh, to know the wonder of his love to show to me. Uh, Peter Lewis expressed it in these terms. says, nothing, absolutely nothing, bears more closely upon our plight than the revelation of the love of the Almighty. We are tiny specks on the face of an almost infinite universe, quantitatively insignificant, involved in a sequence of events in which all is vanity, constantly threatened individually and collectively by the march of history, alone and afraid in a world we have not made. Yet, yet, into this sense of insignificance and insecurity and lack of identity and seeming meaningless shines the love of God. This means no matter. We matter. Matter intensely to someone. We matter personally. We are precious to someone, to the Almighty. This lightens our darkness, redeems our lives from the threat of meaningless and the menace of powers and circumstances, and causes our hearts to make melody in all things. Just, just to know that God loves me. And you know the wonder of it? The Lord Jesus Christ was praying just before his passion on the cross in John 17. And he makes two astonishing things about God's love for us and to us. And he says, Father, that you would love them as you love me. Can you imagine it? Everything about our Lord Jesus Christ is lovable. He's the altogether lovely one. The Father has to love the Son because it's his beloved Son. And he's, he's, you can't help but love him. And the more we see of him, the more we love him. But we're not like him, and yet God loves us in the same way as he's loved his son. If the scriptures didn't say it, I couldn't believe it. And that's the reality. He loves us as he loves his one and only son. And then he ends that chapter, John 17, verse 26. Not only that we would sense that love, but we would also share in that. The love which you have for me will be in them. What an amazing thing to have that love within our hearts. I wonder, do you ever pray, Lord, show me the wonder of your great love. Show it to my mind until it's just overwhelmed by the immensity, the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of that love that passes knowledge. Show it to my soul that love, that perfect love that can cast out fear. Show me the wonder of your great love. And then the next part of the prayer, and this is even more astonishing, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Now I ask you, when was the last time you heard anybody pray that? I have only ever heard one, people, one person pray that. Do you know why? The apple of the eye is the blue-eyed boy. It's the very center of your eye. You know, the one that takes up your gaze. That very precious one. We would think, that's too audacious, that's too arrogant for me to pray that. But the psalmist didn't think so. How is it, could he so unashamedly, freely, fully say, Lord, keep me as the apple of your eye? Because God already said, my people are the apple of my eye. And all the psalmist is doing is taking God at his word with the apple of his eye. 
We are his blue-eyed boys and girls. That's what we are. What a thing to be thought of in those terms. This is what the Lord says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. That's how he loves us. That's how he cares for us. What an amazing thing. The prophet Isaiah, in a different note, but a similar vein, takes up uh, this, uh, th- this thought uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, 42, or 43 rather, and he speaks, since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. Now, if it had been saying, Lord, you're precious in our sight, those who believe he is precious. But he said, you're precious in my sight. And we had to been saying, God is honored. Rightly, he should be honored. But he said, you are honored. You know, a few times in the year, the queen gets out those gongs, you know, the, the honors list, and everybody's delighted. Imagine being in God's honors list. Isn't that something? You are honored in my sight. There's a little song. I'm not sure whether you sing it here, and it says, Lord, you are so precious to me. Do you sing that? Have you ever sung, Lord, we are so precious to you? Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. There are two notes here. There's maybe the thought, you know, when the Lord was going to his passion, he was at Jerusalem, and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as the hen gathers her chickens. And there are the little chickens, and, and there's the hen, there's some sign of danger. And immediately she calls them, and they all run, and she spreads her wings over them. And she's going to take all that's coming. She's going to take it, but they're going to be safe. And with that sense of God's protection, God's preservation, whatever's happening round about us, we can pray, Lord, keep me as the apple of your eye. The other one is in the mercy seat. There's in the temple of the tabernacle, and there there were the cherubims, the wings stretched out. And that was the place where God's presence was especially and particularly revealed. The Shekinah glory was there. Lord, keep me in the shadow of your wings. That presence of yours, just keep me close to yourself. That's the wonder of what we can pray. And then the last part of the psalm is this wondrous or glorious anticipation which he has. It's there, we're in the thick of it, in the midst of it. We're bowed down by the trials and, and we're praying. But there's another dimension to it and he puts it here. As for me, I will be vindicated. There it is. But it doesn't just say he's going to be vindicated and will see your face. And when I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Now, it might just be that he's saying that one day he's going to waken up and things are going to be better. But that, that's not particularly Hebrew thinking. They were thinking about a great day, a glorious day, when all things were going to be right and they were going to be in the presence of God. God was going to dwell with them and they were going to dwell with God. And I believe that's what we have here. What an anticipation. What lies before us? What's in front of us? Now, this particular text became especially real to me. It was a, a girl, she's Irish, but she lives in Leicester. 
and she was born blind. And at first, when she was quite young, she didn't realize the enormity of what her disability was. But as she was growing up and she would hear her other siblings talking about what they're going to do, the things we're going to achieve, and she thought, I can never do that. Never do that. And then she was getting older, she heard friends speaking about their prospects and their futures. And hers looked particularly bleak. She became embittered, especially with regards to God, if there was a God. She was angry and hurt and so forth. And then in her teens, she heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, uh, he opened her eyes, not physically, but spiritually. And that, in that meeting where she spoke, she said, he washed my eyes with tears that I might see. And now I see how much God loves me and what God has done for me and what awaits me. He said, you know, I've never seen a human face. Hard to comprehend that. She says, I don't even know what I look like myself. Can you imagine not knowing what I, you look like? She said, I've never seen my mother's face. She said, oh, I'd love to see my mother's face. I would love that, but I've never seen it. She said, but one day, I'm going to leave this scene of time. And when I open my eyes, the first face I'm going to see is the face of my Savior. The face of my Savior. As for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I wake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. What a prospect. What a hope. What a reality. Oh, dear friends. You know, when we have those moments when we feel the pressures of life, when they seem to be burying down particularly heavily, when our hearts can even be brought low, we know what we can do. We can pray. We can pray like this. We can expect. We can look forward to that glorious day when we awake and see his likeness. May the Lord help us so to do. Well, let's conclude uh, by singing of that love which we've been referring to. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless free, flowing like a mighty ocean in its fullness over me.